KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Anna Kukulper. It's Wednesday, August 18th. How rush hour has changed. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. At least 120 people attended the San Diego County Board of Supervisors meeting yesterday in what made for a contentious four-and-a-half-hour public hearing. A majority of the speakers last night were against vaccine and mask mandates. Many speakers called for board members to be arrested or resign, and they repeatedly disrupted the meeting. Other speakers supported mask mandates. Supervisor Joel Anderson says it's important to hear people's voices on both sides of the issue. A new lawsuit this week is asking a federal judge to either block the September recall election against Governor Gavin Newsom or add his name to the list of possible replacement candidates. State law already says a candidate who's the subject of a recall can't be listed as a replacement for themselves, but legal scholars argue that the structure of the recall violates the Constitution by allowing a governor to be replaced by someone who might win fewer votes. Ballots have already been mailed out, which could complicate any court-ordered changes. Meanwhile, Republican candidate Doug Osi is dropping out of the race after he was hospitalized on Sunday night with a heart attack. His doctors say he should make a full recovery. Osi says he's ending his bid for governor to focus on healing. He didn't endorse any other candidates in the race, but he urged supporters to vote yes on ousting Newsom. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Rush hour in San Diego County has been lighter since the COVID-19 pandemic hit. But as KPBS's Metro reporter Andrew Bowen explains, it's making its way back, just not in the way you might think. Traffic on the freeways bottomed out in the spring of last year, when stay-at-home orders were at their strictest. It's been creeping up ever since. But for Derek Thrasher, who's been working from home since March of 2020, rush hour isn't much of a concern anymore. The lack of a commute prompted him to move recently to a bigger home in Escondido that's further from his office. Also in hopes that <laughs> that when we would return to the office, that traffic would be a little... Um, Less bad coming this direction, going north, but uh, I've actually learned that that's not necessarily the case. Overall, Thrasher says he drives a lot less nowadays, but he also finds himself taking more trips just to get out of the house. After I've been working from home all day and I realize I actually haven't really gone anywhere for a while, um, you know, I might go to the dog park, take the dogs uh, somewhere on just a quick jaunt. Uh, we actually have quite a few options around us. And then... Um, just little trips to the grocery store um, or downtown Escondido to have 
a bite to eat or a drink. Thrasher's driving habits are playing out across the county. Remote working has led to a much lighter morning rush hour, since fewer people are driving to work. But traffic doesn't ease up as much after that morning peak. And sometimes it's worse in the afternoons than before the pandemic. Remote workers may not be driving home from the office, but they are taking more trips unrelated to their jobs. That's according to cell phone location data analyzed by the company Streetlight Data. There's a whole host of new driving that happens because people now have the flexibility to, uh, you know, go off and drop off a child at camp you know, midday or go, you know, do a shopping trip that would have previously been impossible because you're in the office. So we believe that a lot of that midday driving um, has to do with with errands and sort of casual driving. Uh, as opposed to as opposed to commuting. An increase in delivery services has also put more cars and trucks on the road compared to before the pandemic. Total driving is still down, and that's been enough to keep congestion in check. But as more businesses choose to bring their workers back to the office, traffic is likely to keep creeping back up. And that was KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. This month, thousands of San Diego children are returning to school, and with the pandemic still raging, there are safety guidelines that some schools are challenging. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman says one East County district is rescinding a policy that's been drawing criticism. Ramona Unified board members are reversing course for now, putting on hold a recently adopted policy that would allow parents to opt their children out of mask wearing despite state guidelines requiring it. During a special board meeting Monday night, parents spoke on both sides of the issue. As board members, it's not your job to do what's popular. It's your foundational responsibility to ensure the safety of Ramona students at our schools. Following health guidance is the right thing to do for Mona. I'm simply begging for the freedom to choose. What I think is best for my children may not be best for yours. I'm here because I want my I want to make the choice with whether or not my daughter wears a mask. And I don't think it's your right. In a statement to KPBS, Ramona Unified School District Superintendent Teresa Gray said the board went on to approve the safe reopening plan, which follows state guidelines for K-12 schools. And per those guidelines, all students and adults will be required to wear face coverings inside when students return to the classroom on Thursday. The mask wearing requirement is in effect for students and school staff across California. Most recent guidelines say face coverings do not have to be worn outdoors, just inside when kids are present. Currently, those under 12 are not eligible for COVID-19 vaccinations. Let us do our job. Even if you're not happy with how it's going down, um, we need to be able to do our work. This masking issue is not over just yet in Ramona. One school board member tells me that the plan adopted has language specifying that a form for parents to opt their kids out of masks will be soon made available. Don Perfect says the district board and staff will work collaboratively to develop an opt-out form that is legally solid, meaning at the start of the school year, masks will be worn, but there is clear direction to make that optional sometime in the future. And that reporting from KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. A top White House climate advisor promises the Biden administration will deal with climate change, but some local protesters remain unconvinced. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has more. Gina McCarthy gathered with local officials near the seaside train tracks that run through Del Mar. Bluff erosion there 
has local officials scrambling to shore up the cliffs as they consider plans to move the tracks inland. That served as the backdrop for McCarthy to tout the Biden administration's respect for science and a commitment to fight for the environment. Every decision has to think about climate and equity as a fundamental consideration. And you have a president who came in and, and on the first day he didn't just rejoin Paris, but he set goals that we have to keep. McCarthy promised aggressive action to deliver the president's promises to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. She says solar power was the big winner in the energy marketplace last year and that momentum for renewable power needs to keep building. But that wasn't enough for a small group of protesters who demanded an end to all fossil fuel burning. Stop issuing permits for uh, drilling and other oil and gas related projects, particularly on public federal lands. While the arguments may only be apart by a couple of degrees, one thing that is not in dispute is that the climate is warming and it will impact areas like this in Del Mar. And that reporting from KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Meanwhile, environmental activists are going after top Democrats in the California Senate for not doing enough to combat climate change. Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon reports. The California League of Conservation Voters has new ads and mailers blaming top Democrats in the Senate for stalled legislation to cut down on oil and gas production. Mary Creesman leads the environmental group. We have no more road to kick down on the climate crisis. We have to tackle these now and delay isn't an option. Creesman specifically pointed to a bill which would have banned fracking and outlawed fossil fuel extraction near neighborhoods. The bill stalled earlier this year when it didn't have the votes to pass out of a committee, and two Democrats, Majority Leader Bob Hertzberg and Senator Ben Hueso, abstained from voting. Senate President Pro Tem Tony Atkins is also being targeted by the group. Her office dismissed the ad campaign in a statement and said the San Diego Democrats' efforts to address climate change are, quote, irrefutable. And that was Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon. Coming up, as the Taliban takes control of Afghanistan, another bitter episode in recent American history comes to mind. Afghanistan has become Vietnam 2.0. And so the analog would be to look back in history and ask ourselves, if there are enough parallels to our exit from Vietnam, can we apply that and sort of draw some lessons from that? We'll have more on that next, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
Now that the Taliban has seized control of Afghanistan, many questions remain over what dangers could be posed following the exit of the U.S. armed forces from the region. Eric Garski is a political scientist and the founding director of the Center for Peace and Security Studies at UC San Diego. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Here's that interview. There's a lot of concern, as mentioned, over the threat of terrorism now that the Taliban has seized control of Afghanistan. Does their swift takeover of the country pose a significant threat to the United States? Well, my short answer would be no. There are real legitimate concerns about security, and Americans have reasons to be concerned. But uh, I think we can look at the facts and reassure folks that at least in this instance, reality is not as severe as they may fear. Does our departure from Afghanistan raise the risk of international terrorism in any way? It could potentially, but not for the United States, paradoxically. The way I'm starting to think about this thing is Afghanistan has become Vietnam 2.0. And so the analog would be to look back in history and ask ourselves, if there are enough parallels to our exit from Vietnam and the victory of the North Vietnamese communists, can we apply that and sort of draw some lessons from that? And I think we can. One of the first ones is that there were a lot of the same or very similar fears in the 1970s uh, when the U.S. exited Vietnam. And there was a similar cataclysmic collapse of the South Vietnamese Arvin forces, much like in Afghanistan today. So maybe the Taliban now turns around and starts carrying out terrorism around the world. But it's very unlikely. First of all, they weren't the ones that committed 9-11. They hosted al-Qaeda, and there was sort of a business relationship between al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So al-Qaeda really is a problem, but for the most part, they've been destroyed and are a a vanishingly ineffective force, in uh, certainly in Afghanistan and also in many other places. The Taliban didn't show any interest in carrying out terrorist acts abroad. And today, they've got their hands full trying to reestablish their authority in Afghanistan. Leading national defense officials have warned of the possibility that terror cells could regroup within the country after the Taliban's takeover. How likely is that? I think it's very likely. It's not that the Taliban will be leading those efforts or that they will necessarily encourage them, but they will tolerate them. Uh, But paradoxically, the big problem of uh, terrorism originating from Afghanistan is not towards the United States. It's towards some of our chief uh, adversaries in the world. It's China and Russia. The Taliban will be attempting to secure international diplomatic legitimacy now that it holds power in Afghanistan. Do you think that that will motivate them to keep terrorist groups in check? I think that might be true in part. I think they're more practical domestic issues. It's not clear how global terrorism helps the Taliban's objective of cementing their leadership of Afghanistan right now. It's more a sort of negative case than a positive case. They have no particular reason to carry out global terrorism when they have a lot of domestic competitors still in play, warlords, tribal traditional groups, and of course, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. So then that leads me to my next question, too. Does the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan mean an increase in terror within its own borders? It wasn't like Afghanistan was a peaceful and safe environment at any point in the last 40 or 50 years. It's been an environment in which violence is endemic, in which political violence had its own logic. Uh, The winners in politics tended to be 
those who were willing to be more ruthless than the losers. How was the Taliban able to take power so quickly? And what does this mean for citizens living within the country, particularly women? This is a bad thing for anybody in Afghanistan who believes in anything vaguely approaching civil liberties. They clearly have supporters, and those supporters are going to be happy about this. But many of the people who who saw progressive elements in Afghan politics and culture as as a positive thing are in trouble, not unlike happened in Vietnam in the 1970s. You know, the United States has spent 20 years fighting the Taliban. And now that we've pulled out, how will this affect the geopolitical situation in the region? That's where America gets lucky. American foreign policy is a litany of mistakes. It's also a record of happy outcomes, or at least successful outcomes for the United States. The U.S. lost the war in Vietnam, and Vietnam and China immediately turned around and carried out a war that many people don't know about, but in which the Chinese probably lost more casualties than the Americans did in 25 years of fighting. Today, the Vietnamese are sidling up to the United States and trying to be good friends because they're more concerned about their local threats than they are about distant adversaries like the United States. And I think that's probably a story we could tell about Afghanistan too. It's too soon for the Taliban and the US to make up, but the logic of the situation is such that Afghanistan or the Taliban's adversaries, the worst adversaries, the ones that are near by are also adversaries for the United States, like I said, like China and Russia. And that opens a window of opportunity that in the long run, the U.S. can have a a reasonable arm's length relationship with this new government that doesn't agree with U.S. politics and philosophy in many other ways. Also, American troops have spent the past two decades training Afghan soldiers and providing resources to them. Based on what we're seeing happen in Afghanistan now, how might that training be used? And could that training be used against uh, the U.S.? Well, the short answer is yes. But in practical terms, there are very few opportunities. The United States has the blessing and curse of distance. In a recent publication, one of my graduate students and I showed that one of the best predictors of U.S. failure in military adventures was the number of miles between Washington, D.C. and the place that they were fighting. Well, obviously, Afghanistan is very far from Washington. And that means that it's very hard for the United States to win in a place like Afghanistan. But it's also very hard for anybody in Afghanistan to do anything very serious to thwart U.S. interests in other places. They simply lack the resources and capabilities to do so. Afghanistan doesn't have an aircraft carrier. Do you think it's at all naive to think that the turmoil we're leaving in Afghanistan could not end up at the doorstep of America? Well, America's doorstep is very far away. There's no question that the turmoil and instability is going to cause problems. They're going to cause problems like throwing a rock in a pond. You get eddies and waves, and those eddies are going to hit the closest things first. And the closest things to Afghanistan are not America. They're not even things that the U.S. cares particularly much about. They're places like the interior of Asia, the far southern portions of Russia, the Caucasus and Pakistan, all places where the U.S. hasn't got the same amount of purchase and interest as it has in other places. Does the U.S. currently face then more of a threat from foreign or domestic terrorism? I think the appropriate way to think about this is it depends on who you are. Just like we think of 
A depression is when you lose your job and a recession is when your neighbor loses their job. Domestic terrorism is a very serious issue, but almost certainly it's one that's of greater focus for the targets of domestic terrorism and their partners and friends and so on. For the most part, that problem is one that's occurred at a lower level. It hasn't been treated as and hasn't been perceived as as a national security problem, in part because of the separation of the military and civil affairs. We try to keep the U.S. military out of domestic politics. But that being said, I think, for example, the Biden administration is treating right-wing domestic terrorism, organized terrorism, neo-fascist groups, and so on, much more seriously. And I suspect in the coming years, we'll see a number of uh, high-profile cases in which domestic law enforcement arrests and and ultimately convicts folks that are engaged in those horrible activities. That was Eric Garsky, a political scientist and the founding director of the Center for Peace and Security Studies at UC San Diego. He was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.